At KUT, bringing you rigorous fact-based reporting is the highest priority. Even during uncertain times, KUT exists to serve the greater Central Texas community, and your support is what keeps this service strong. Give today at KUT.org. Thank you. It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate trip pizza? It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate trip pizza for the price of one? A taste for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. So wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy meat. That's a spicy Why is it important for people to know about food? The benefit. Why is it important for people to know about food? The benefits of eating a diverse variety of foods are extraordinary. Food is a way of eating a diverse variety of foods are extraordinary. Talking about all of those things. Food is a way of talking about all of those things and way and way more. It's about everything. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I am Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. And I'm Raj Patel, a professor at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Today, our secret ingredient is bananas. We'll talk with feminist writer and professor Dr. Cynthia Enlow, whose latest book, Bananas, Beaches, and Bases, Making Feminist Sense of International Politics, investigates the long history of oppression in the banana industry and the intricate power structures involved in bringing this yellow fruit to grocery stores all over the world. Stay with us. Work all night and a drink a rum. Bananas are the most commonly consumed fresh fruit in the United States. It's worth bearing in mind that the reason we have plantation agriculture is because of um, some fairly dodgy history. Hello? Hi, Cynthia. It's Rebecca. How you doing? Hey, Rebecca. I'm just dandy. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Here in the studio with me is Raj Patel. Hi, Cynthia. Hey, Raj. How you doing? And Tom Philpott. Hi, Cynthia. Hey, Tom. Cynthia, thank you so much for writing Bananas, Beaches and Bases, Making Feminist Sense of International Politics. Now, for for people who are outside the world of um, political science and sociology, um, this may sound like one of those laboured titles, but I think it's important for people to understand why it is that feminism and the food, understanding food, go together. I'm I'm wondering if if you can talk to us a little bit about how it is that you came across the idea of uh, putting feminism into a discussion of food, in particular around bananas. Well, when I first began thinking, Raj, about um, particularly plantation crops, I was doing my dissertation research in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia, and I was living in a new small apartment building where the cement, I think, was still wet, and it was just um, on the edge of a rubber um, plantation. And every morning, very early in the morning, I would watch Indian-Malaysian rubber tappers uh, tapping these beautiful slender trees. Rubber plantations, you probably know, are really quite beautiful, um, though they're also the source site of exploitation. But to look at, they're very beautiful. So I would watch the rubber plantation workers and then go off and do my study of political parties and not really think about them. But it kind of stayed in my head. And I, I think ever since that time, I come from suburban New York. I had never seen a plantation in my life. Um, I knew, you know, suburban tract housing. That's what I knew. And so it really stuck in my head. And I began thinking about other plantation crops, many of which are food crops, um, such as tea, bananas, 
And when it came time for me to, well, not came time, when I had this odd idea that maybe if one tried to find out where women were in the whole host of international political scenes, maybe international politics would be more understandable. And when I began thinking that odd question, I came back to plantations and plantation crops. And at the time, when I first began thinking about this, the wars in Central America were very much um, in the headlines, and certainly the United States government's interference in those wars, fueling the wars um, in Central America, were very much headlined topics. And so I thought about bananas, and I began to really look at where women were in the banana industry and where ideas about masculinity were in the politics of the banana. And, of course, most of us have grown up hearing the term the banana republic, not meaning the clothing chain, but actually a corrupt kind of local government. And I began wondering, well, what happens to the whole idea of nationalism and anti-colonialism um, and political life in general, if you asked where are the women in a banana republic, and particularly where were they on a banana plantation. And to tell you the truth, I had no idea. I really had to go looking, and f that's when I discovered, oh, in the contemporary modernized banana plantation, which are owned by big multinational corporations, particularly the big three American companies, they're in the washing sheds. And I began to really pay a lot of attention to how bananas, once they are cut down by mail workers and brought in great big bunches to the washing sheds, what's it like to be a woman working there, standing up all day, usually with their feet in pools of pesticides? What's it like working there? And do they have any say in how the labor unions are organized or how the corporations run their business? So that's that pulled me into women's lives in the banana industry. And when you were pulled into that discussion, what surprised you most? Well, first of all, it surprised me if there were any women at all on a banana plantation. Because if you have ever seen photographs, especially very political photographs, of who is working on a banana plantation, on a foreign-owned U.S. corporate, usually, a banana plantation. What you see is muscular men, underpaid men, by the way, but they look very strong, and they're wielding big machetes, and they are cutting down big bunches of bananas, and it's very hard work. And that image was also an image that could be used by uh, nationalists including the male banana workers themselves, to try and say, we are the nation. We will not be exploited by this hand-in-glove alliance between our corrupt local government and the foreign corporate executives. We are the nation. We, the muscular, machete-wielding banana workers, male workers, we are the nation. And once I began looking below that, and found out that, well, there actually are women working on banana plantations. And what do they think about that image of what the nation is? It really allowed me to think not only of what are the lives of women workers like, but what do they think about what they're doing, and what do they think about local politics that are part of international politics. It was really quite a wake-up call for me. 
Cynthia, could you could you talk for a second about what goes on in those in those plants? Like what kind of conditions exist inside those uh, female sort of dominated spaces? Yes, here's what I learned happening. Every food, as you all are showing all your lucky listeners, every food has a history. Every single food has a history. And it usually has a political history, and it almost always has a gendered history. Mm -hmm. That is, women's history within that food and men's history within that food are not going to be the same. So what I discovered in the history of bananas is that in the late 20th or mid-20th century, the big banana companies, and these are Chiquita Banana, which used to be called United Fruit, but now called Chiquita, and Del Monte and Dole. Those are the three biggies in the world. They began thinking, oh, they could make more money for their company if they could devise shipping that was refrigerated enough so that you could bring green bananas on board, bring them to Boston or bring them to L.A., have them all ready to go to the supermarket, i.e., they'd have to have been washed, and particularly of their pesticides, which Mm. are heavily used on the plantations by the corporations. But how will they do that? And so for the first time in the mid-20th century, companies began to introduce washing sheds on the plantations. This was new. And when they did something like this that was new, they immediately thought in gender terms. They thought, well, who would be, for us, the corporate executives, who would be the best workers? And when they thought about washing, they thought, oh, well, women know how to wash. And I mean, a completely stereotypical but corporate strategy. And they also assumed that women wouldn't need to be paid as much because there was the other myth in their head, which was that women are married and they're married to men who bring home an income, and therefore you don't have to pay your women workers as much. So you combine these two myths, which sound like very old-fashioned myths, but they were put to work to modernize the contemporary banana global industry. That is that women are good at washing, although most women, in fact, don't spend their time washing off chemicals. (laughs) Um, And secondly, that women are married to men who have decent incomes and therefore don't themselves. The women need to be paid very much. You put those two very old-fashioned and updated, modernized myths together, and you got the all-women washing sheds on the plantations in Latin America and Central America. Cynthia, can you put that work that those women are doing kind of in context of their daily lives and the other work that women are doing in that situation? Yes, Rebecca, that's a really good point to make because, in fact, it was Latin American feminists who, in the 1980s, I think it was, came up with the concept of the double day. And the double day was a way for Latin American feminists to alert all the rest of us that women who have paid work also have unpaid work that they're expected to do. And that means that when they finish their shift, whether they're domestic workers or banana workers or garment workers or street vendors, they then go home and they do hours more of unpaid work. And what the Latin American feminists wanted us all to understand women's political place and their economic conditions and their economic needs and demands, we had to take on board not just their paid work, but their unpaid work. It's one of the great contributions that feminists have made to understanding the politics of workers, the politics of labor. You cannot stay inside the factory or you cannot stay on the plantation 
and imagine that you're understanding the full political economy of any woman's life. I mean, for me, one of the, the great revelations in reading your book, Cynthia, was that understanding how it was that uh, the, the care work that happens in the home makes it possible for men to, to venture off into the banana plantation and uh, you know, to, to uh, break their bodies doing the, the hard work of harvesting and then have a place to return to after their bodies are broken. That, that's also a central part even of men's work. And, and I wonder if we can return you to the point that you mentioned a little while ago about these, these sort of images of nationalism and of representation. And I'm, I'm curious about that just because although women were clearly underpaid in the washing sheds, the best paid woman in Hollywood um, in the, the 1940s and 50s was Carmen Miranda, who uh, was deployed in the marketing of the banana. And I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. And certainly, I mean, you know, when people think about songs related to bananas, it's either Harry Belafonte's Banana Boat song or it's Carmen Miranda singing about fruit. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the sort of cultural side of uh, of this gender divide. Yes, Carmen Miranda became very interesting to me because when I was doing this, I was also looking at how the banana corporations, which at that time, they were all American corporations, and how they were close allies of the officials making foreign policy, especially towards Latin America. And Carmen Moran herself was certainly not a dupe by any means. She had her own politics, and they were actually quite progressive politics. But she was herself not from a magnet family, but from um, a much more modest middle-class Brazilian family that owned a grocery store. So she grew up around groceries. And she also, in Brazil, was very admiring. She was Portuguese, and as a young woman beginning to discover her own performance skills, she became really interested in street vendors, and particularly Afro-Brazilian women street vendors. And she modeled herself on those women. She herself was not Afro-Brazilian. She was Euro-Brazilian. But her style of dress, those flamboyant hats, and her way of using both Afro-Brazilian and Portuguese-Brazilian music woven together um, was really quite innovative, was very innovative, and actually um, upset a lot of people. People in Hollywood and Broadway really wanted her to drop her Afro-Brazilian um, influences, and she refused to do it. Uh, so she had politics, but when she got to Hollywood in the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s, and the beginning of World War II, she really became such a symbol of and one of the few, star Latinas, that both the companies that were making the movies and Washington thought that they could use her to build a good neighbor, as they called it, policy between Washington and Latin America. And she played in movies that were uh, intended to show that there was the happy Latin American and that they could be enjoyed by American moviegoers. So she, I became very interested in her because it also suggested that the banana had become a symbol of modern life. I mean, you couldn't have a banana until you could have long-distance shipping. You couldn't have a banana in an American, North American grocery store until you had perfected all other sorts of modern technologies. And so her Hollywood persona combined with the image of the banana 
being you've arrived in modern consumption life. Really, I wanted to put those two things together so that you could see the lives of women in the washing sheds and the lives of women shopping for this modern fruit in their own supermarket, that they were part of the same international politics. The woman in the supermarket who is looking for the perfect banana, which means it's a pesticide-grown banana, and the woman in the washing sheds who's trying to make ends meet with her double day, those two women are related to each other. The people working on the plantations, and I guess we're, we're talking kind of mid-century, mid-20th century on, working these plantations in places like Costa Rica, Guatemala, um, Colombia, were they landless farmers? Were they, what were they like before the plantations showed up? What, what sort of conditions were, were, they, were they in? They oftentimes were tenant farmers or they were on barely sustainable plots of land. And so a lot of people who go to work on plantations, they themselves are desperate for income because they can't generate income off their poor pieces of land. And oftentimes the plantation companies themselves, working hand in glove with the local government, deprive people of whatever meager access to land for farming that they have. I mean, the plantation lands didn't just come out of thin air. And one of the worst parts of that story that that I know of is in Guatemala, and I think in other countries as well, the companies would own much more land than they actually used, right? They would own huge amounts of land and actually put banana plantations on a fraction of it. Yes, because they also um, had housing for particularly for the foreign executives and supervisors. They had railroad lines, and they had land that they just didn't even use. And this was one of the things that fueled the nationalist movements, particularly in Central America, because it was, it was the abuse of the male workers that really became well-known, combined with the foreign companies, again, hand-in-glove with the local autocracies, that gave away so much land that could have been farmed by local farmers for their own subsistence and for some market crop economy. What I think feminist analysis shows, feminist investigations, is they couldn't have done any of that if they hadn't manipulated ideas about manliness and manipulated ideas and the labor of women. And that, I think, leaving that part out, which was left out until the late 1980s, 1990s especially, meant that it was a quite a naive notion of what was the politics of the Banana Republic. It wasn't just a politics of class. It wasn't even just a politics of class and ethnicity. It was also, uh, very importantly, the politics of manipulating ideas about women's work, paid and unpaid, and ideas about the nation's relationship to manliness. What, what are the, the, the bananeras? Um, uh, yes, you, which they, was what they called themselves, now, the women banana workers. What, what, what is it that they've uh, achieved, and what's their big fight at the moment? Well, at the moment, and this is really now way down the line here, um, I mean, remember they've been, well, not remember, but they have been organizing since the 
mid-1980s. So just think of how much stamina you have to have, just like the women's suffrage movement in every country. You cannot think in one year or two years or five years or even ten years. They've been organizing now for 30 years, some of the same women. They're now in their 50s. They started in their early 20s, you know, working in the sheds and having these consciousness-raising groups. They've gotten to the point that they are raising issues of sexual harassment on the plantations. Now, the whole idea of sexual harassment, really, those two words, just like Double Day, it was a concept that was fashioned by, in this case, labor union activists in the United States and their feminist lawyers to describe a certain kind of abuse of power in a workspace. And we now call it sexual harassment, but it was a new concept, brand new concept in 1980. And now these women are lobbying, pressing, pushing, for instance, Chiquita, to take seriously sexual harassment on their plantations. I mean, talk about a revolution. But, but uh, as, as you've also noted, I mean, the, the banana itself is the, you know, the, the schoolboy's giggly substitute for uh, a penis in uh, you know, sex ed classes. Uh, but it's also, I mean, the, the sex work on plantations has, has also been normalized uh, in, in the past. I wonder if you can just sort of talk about that, you know, the, the, this, this amazing history that, that brings us now to a, a moment where it's possible to talk about sexual harassment on the plantations when originally you know, sex work on plantations was part of the, the, the perks of, of being a, a male plantation worker. And it was part of the way that the overseas executives thought they could control male workers by giving them that perk, right? So it's between men as well as men and women. You know, one of the things that I learned, Raj, was from spending a lot of time trying to understand how military bases work. And one of the things my feminist friends, particularly in the Philippines, taught me was you can never understand a military base, which itself is a kind of plantation, if you think about it, a compound of workers and hierarchies of race, class, and gender, unless you ask where is the prostitution. Hmm. And I began just every time I opened up kind of a new area that I wanted to understand, in this case, the banana plantations, I had no idea. Nobody had ever written about it that I'd ever seen because, as you say, it was normalized, just as prostitution being called the oldest profession. And I've often thought prostitution isn't the oldest profession. Pimping is. But the, um, <laughs> the, the always ask where is prostitution. Just always ask, not because you know, because you don't know. And ask how is it organized racially? How is it uh, controlled, who benefits from it, um, and what's the hierarchy of benefit from allowing for brothels or other kinds of prostitution systems. And so I did. So I just thought, well, I don't know. But I wrote to a friend of mine who is a very good analyst of non-gendered politics of bananas and of banana republics, and I said to him, well, I don't have any idea, but in your research, and I'd read his book, so I knew he didn't talk about it. I said, in your research, have you ever run into any brothels on the edges of or on the plantations? And back he wrote this most fulsome typed letter describing in enormous detail the workings of class, race, masculinity, and femininity in the workings of brothels 
on a plantation, banana plantation he was studying in Central America, but he never thought it would be political to write about it. Hmm. He didn't think it was political. He thought it was, I don't know, like crabgrass or something. (laughs) Also political. But anyway, everything's political. But, But he just, so he knew a lot. He knew who went to which brothels. He knew which women were in each brothel. He knew much how much time each male client spent. He knew from the women where they migrated from. He knew how the executives thought about the brothels. He knew all of that, and he had never written about it because he didn't think it was political. And that's, that's what happens when you become a feminist. You really see the full range of the workings of power in a way that people who haven't yet become feminist, I think he's more feminist now, um, just don't, they take for granted, which means if you take something for granted, you really dismiss most of the workings of power. Yeah. Has he written about it consequently? Yeah. Yeah. Most of, in a lot of my stuff about militaries and military bases, I spend a lot of time talking about not just prostitution, but who are the women in prostitution? And what do they think about doing what they do? And what are their own strategies for survival? Because any woman who is in prostitution is a thinking woman. She may not have much space in which to wield much influence, but she certainly thinks, and she tries to cope with whatever very limited resources she has and to make sense of militaries any place in the world, including ongoing wars. One always has to ask about the workings of prostitution. That's one of the things I've now learned to ask. Hmm. And this is like organized prostitution, or how do you kind of define prostitution in your research and when you ask well, the I question? Well, I think, Rebecca, you, you're absolutely right to suggest that there are levels of system, if you will. And um, around U.S military bases, for instance, it's highly organized. I don't mean that the U.S. military owns the brothels, although in the past a lot of militaries have actually owned brothels. And usually they have one sort of brothel for enlisted men and another sort of brothel for officer men, and neither goes to the other's brothel, etc. But um, in some places it's much less obviously organized, but that doesn't mean there's not a policy. It doesn't mean that there's not a policing strategy. It doesn't mean that there's not a health care strategy, meaning to keep the soldiers healthy, the male soldiers. Hmm. So you're right. When you ask about prostitution on a banana plantation or near a shipbuilding base or a military base, when you ask about it, be ready for a full range of how highly organized it is. One question I have is that one of the man, one of the few manifestations of change that American consumers have seen since the this '80s era beginning of uh, organizing these workers in these cleaning houses is you know now suddenly in the past ten or fifteen years we have available bananas labeled organic or fair trade. And oftentimes it'll be the same three companies that you're talking about, Chiquita, Del Monte, Dole, organic bananas or fair fair trade bananas. Can you talk us through what, if any, these labels mean on the shop floor in the washing house for for these women? 
Well, there, let me add a fourth banana company because it's a really important one. It's Naboa, N-O-B-O-A, and okay. their brand name, their sticker is Bonita. Okay. And one should really keep a very close watch on them. It's owned by an Ecuadorian um, wealthy entrepreneur, and they ban all labor unions on he does on all his plantations, and he's one of the most abusive of his workers. So keep your eye out for Benita. Okay. The, the various companies have dealt differently with fair trade and with um, organic. And, of course, organic is not the same as fair trade. Right. So one of the things that all of us as consumers have to do is beware of eliding the two because both are seemingly attractive and progressive. It doesn't mean that they are synonymous. Um, a fair trade is very interesting. A lot of fair trade bananas are uh, grown by small growers. Um, And at first that seems much more um, likely to be hospitable to changed, less patriarchal, if you will, um, gender relations. But one has to look really carefully at who owns land titles. And when you find a fair trade company and they say owned by small growers who get a much higher proportion of the um, sales price back, you one has to go inside the household and say, well, who's getting it? Who owns land title? And you can still have, you can have a patriarchal small grower who, while if you just talk about household, it's again one of the things that feminists have taught us, if you just leave the household as the unit of how you're going to measure whether you think it's fair trade or not, does the household get a high proportion of the sale price that you can, the consumer is paying? If you just leave it at the household, you may leave women on the margins inside the household because they don't get the money or they don't own land titles. So that's the first warning is don't just look at households, look at relations between women and men inside of any fair trade household or fair trade small community. The second thing was your good warning, which was, um, you know, corporations learn much faster than we do. Um, This is dismaying sometimes, but they are big learning machines. And if they find that fair trade and or organic is something that makes a product attractive to us, the consumer, they will certainly try and horn in on it really fast. And they have lots of ways of doing that. So it's not clear that every organic um, banana, first of all, is really pesticide-free. It is true, though, and I've heard this from uh, the um, banana women activists themselves, and that is that a lot of the plantation companies are doing two things. They're breaking up some of the big plantations because then they don't have to deal with as many labor issues, and if they deal mainly with small growers, they don't have to deal with powerful unions. Hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that moving towards more organic does mean that they are less likely to have big washing sheds. And in that case, um, a lot of women are losing their jobs. Hmm. 
Wow. So that that's not, you know, a good news story. I mean, it's not no no story about what makes us feel less guilty is an automatically good story for the workers at the other end that we think we're trying to be supportive of. We have to be a lot more curious, a lot more curious, rather than just thinking, oh, organic must be good for the women on the plantation or on the small holder farm. But then, Cynthia, there's a a question that's at the limit of consumer concern, and, and it's a question that, that's prompted by the fact of being a consumer, which is, look, um, do we buy bananas at all? Should we should we just stop doing this because ultimately buying bananas participates in this horrible chain of exploitation and uh, these companies are horrible companies, particularly um, the, you know, the, the ones that you're talking about where uh, you know, where a Bonita brand banana involves no uh, union representation at all. Surely the thing to do then is not to buy bananas and to uh, let uh, folk in banana producing countries try and reclaim the land or or should we buy fair trade bananas because that's what people in the country want or I mean, there's a there's a question about consumer participation in the banana industry, and one of the options that we have, by dint of being in the global north, is just to walk away. And I I wonder what advice you would have for for someone who is at the you know, right at the limits of being the best ethical consumer they can be. And I wonder if you have advice about being more than just a consumer, but but encouraging us in the global north to take our historic responsibilities a bit more seriously. Yes, I, this, is, this is really good, Raj. I, uh, my sense is this, and over the years um, I've, I've tried to follow this, but I don't always follow it as well as I should or could, and that is I try to hear what the women who are organizing in any one of these industries, and oftentimes organizing with men who've begun to see them as equals, those are the people I listen to, and when they call for a boycott, then I'm much more likely to then stay away from that product or from that brand of that product. Until they call for the boycott, I tend not to. I avoid certain brands. I try to learn which brands are better than others. Surprisingly, the Banana Nera's women organizers have now gotten to the point they think Chiquita is amongst the most receptive to some of their um conditions and demands, which came as a big surprise to me. Um, so I, I really don't automatically, again, it's, a, it's in a funny kind of way, is another kind of laziness to imagine, well, I just won't, you know, buy that product anymore, and that will absolve me. Um, but I'm not so sure that's really what the people who are producing these goods and who depend on these jobs as exploitative as they are want us to do. The garment workers in Bangladesh, they haven't called for any of us to stop buying, if you will, industrial-made clothes. They've asked us to put pressure on the Gap and pressure on Walmart, and the Banana Arrows people have asked us to put pressure on um, supermarkets and we've we've left off the big supermarket players here because they've become very important in the banana industry to put pressure on them um, but not necessarily to stop buying a certain food stuff altogether and by the way let me mention those um, those big grocery chain players because they've become more and more important and they're least as powerful as the well-known Dole Del Monte Naboa and Chiquita, and these are the 
the big global grocery store chains, and they are the big the big five are Walmart. That came as news to me. I didn't realize Walmart was one of the big five grocery store supermarket chains. Costco, U.S., Tesco, which is British, Carrefour, which you see all around the world, and it's French, and Kroger, which is American. And most of us do have some capacity for putting leverage on grocery store chains because that's where we are actually shopping every day. And from what I've learned... Um, the banana is the single biggest profit maker, profit margin of any food any grocery store carries. They make more money off of each banana we buy than they make off of any other product in their big supermarkets. That's incredible because yeah. bananas are Isn't so that incredible? cheap. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, really. Well, out of out of a fifty cent banana, I was just buying bananas and. I noticed that their signs said, because this is a small shop where people oftentimes want to buy one or two bananas. So it said 50 cents a banana. Out of 50 cents for a banana, only 4% goes to the producer. Um, so there are the, the retailers, the wholesalers, the advertisers, of course, in between. And so these big supermarket chains which like to present themselves as simply having to deal with what the international economy deals them um, and would like us all to imagine that Chiquita is the only bad guy on the globe. Right. In fact, they are calling a lot of the shots now in bananas. Sure. And that 4% that the producer gets, that is for the producer's profit and then also for all the money for labor. And it's an incredibly labor-intensive crop. And so Absolutely. that is a tiny slice of the pie. Absolutely. This is true of virtually all the plantation crops. This is true of tea. This is true of coffee. Um, it's sugar, and let's not forget sugar. Um, so to put the big six, big five um, supermarket chains in our kind of picture here really allows us as consumers to pay attention to um, what kind of bananas are being sold, um, and whether they really are what the sticker says they are. And there you can really go after your local supermarket. And also, Cynthia, I mean, I'm, I'm really struck by this tension about, on the one hand, absolutely taking one's cue from the, the workers who are leaders and reflecting on their, you know, the best deal that they can get out of a plantation agriculture system. And on the other hand, my own kind of discomfort with the idea of, look, it's, a plant, it's plantation agriculture. There's, there's no civilized way of doing plantation agriculture, it seems to me, and that there are better ways of using the land than by growing bananas for uh, people in far-off countries, one would imagine. Uh, if you're looking to support a, you know, a, a biodiverse agriculture system, that's at odds with a plantation agriculture system. And if people... I, think, I think you're quite right about that, Raj, and I think... One of the things that's very interesting to me is most Caribbean um, commercial bananas are grown by small growers, and most African bananas, particularly in former French um, colonies in Africa, French-speaking Africans, they are also small growers. And so one has to, Fife, um, F-Y-T-H-E-S, Fife um, is one of the big former um, Irish-owned um, companies that really dealt with the local uh, small growers. And so small growing 
bananas may in fact be much better for the environment, may be much better for sustainable food production and for agricultural living. Um, it's not automatically exactly. not abusive. Mm, right. It's just not as obviously abusive, and it doesn't produce banana republics. I think just the main thing is keep your gender lens on all the time. Have a feminist curiosity, even when you don't know what you'll find. Hello, amigo. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. It's been great. Not at all. I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing, really. You're going to make us all smarter. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, appreciate Cynthia. it. Take, Take care, care, Tom. Take care, Roz. Take care, Rebecca. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 And that was Cynthia Enlow, author of Bananas, Beaches, and Bases, Making Sense of International Relations. Come, uh, And that's out with the University of California Press, 2014. Get it now. Bananas like the climate of the very, very tropical equator. You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient with me, Rebecca McEnroy, Raj Patel, and Tom Philpont. Join us next time when our secret ingredient will be soda. We'll talk with Marion Nessel, author of Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. The Secret Ingredient is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. As our community grapples with developing public health concerns, the team of reporters at KUT are gathering the facts and bringing you the answers to your most pressing questions. Keep this coverage strong with your gift of support today at KUT.org. And thank you.